Welcome to the Rippling Pages podcast, great writers making waves with the word, all in conversation with me, Liam Bishop. Certainly goes for today's writer, Katharina Voltmer. She was born in Germany, but she now lives in London. Last year, she saw her debut novel, The Appointment, or The Story of a Cock, explode onto the scene. A sad, funny and lewd monologue which crosses the Holocaust, gender identity and a relationship with a therapist called Jason. Published by Fitzcarraldo Editions, Katerina wrote the novel in English and notably, although the appointment has been picked up in the States and Europe, it is due to be published in Germany this summer. The narrator, she speaks to Dr. Seligman as she prepares for an operation in your novel, The Appointment. The novel is a spectacularly ranging monologue that is lewd, sad, funny, but with this, it also means there's a lot of silence in the novel. And there's a silent Dr. Seligman who's performing the operation on your narrator. What he does, he allows her to speak without hindrance. You yourself have spoken of the strange German silence that sits over the Holocaust in other interviews. I wondered what does Dr. Seligman's silence represent in this novel? I don't really think of it as silence. I mean, it is silence, but um, to me, the two find themselves in a kind of dialogue. Um, or at least for me, it always has elements of a dialogue as well, because he, his presence is, is very important um, to me. And I didn't want her to be, to be talking into a voice. But he does, of course, he lets her speak. I think that's the, and I guess that's probably maybe what you mean as well by, by silence, is that he, he's, he's allowing her to speak, but at the same time, he doesn't speak himself and I think that means that he's not granting her a kind of absolution or anything like that which I think is um which is of course what she's after in some ways I think she's she's flirting with him and she's sort of provoking him and and he is giving her little reactions you know sometimes he smiles or he he laughs at her at her jokes um and to me that's that's very important, sort of, that he's there and he, he, he lets her speak, but it doesn't go beyond that. And sometimes people ask me to write his voice, which I find totally absurd, and I'm not, I'm not planning on doing that. Um, and, and in a way, this him allowing her to speak is something that I, once the book was published and I, I started to get some feedback from readers um, and in a way my Jewish readers have confirmed it in the sense that they find her very funny and they like to listen to her they were very curious about what she she has to say and I think that her humor is sort of creating this anarchic space almost in which suddenly a different kind of conversation can be had I think it's also important that she has to navigate this silence. Uh, you said absolution. She's she's after absolution, but he can't give her that. Does that mean there's a lot of guilt incorporated into it? It would seem there's a lot of guilt, but it was guilt something that you kind of consciously gave your narrator. Yes, and I think if you're not German, it's very hard to imagine what that kind of situation means. So she's there with someone who's Jewish and she's given this well, opportunity almost to talk so, so openly. Um, but at the same time, I think there is a, a tendency 
not just on the part of you know Germans with regard to sort of Jewish people, but um, that white people, <laughs> to, to put it more generally, they kind of they would like to get this absolution, right? They would like to sort of have someone say, "Oh, it's okay," <laughs> um, and it isn't. You know, it's an open wound, and it, it, you know, I think we shouldn't seek it. But for me, it was very important that he remains silent and he doesn't, because at the end of the day, she doesn't know what he thinks. No, she makes all sorts of assumptions about him. Well, this is why and I she... wondered. Um... You've said explicitly that you you find it interesting that people sort of jump to the his role as he's a psychotherapist. And sure, do you see why people might do that? I I have various theories about that. Um, one one theory is that I think people find it easier if they think he's a therapist um, because they don't. It's a, it's a sin that people find it much easier to talk about sort of I don't know the Nazi stuff in the book and, and the Hitler fantasies, but they find it more difficult to talk about the body, I think. And obviously, if they allow themselves to to know that Dr. Seligman is 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 not you know a therapist, then th the book becomes more complicated, I think. Um, and of course, there's a sort of I don't know, I guess, stereotypical character of the Jewish uh, therapist. But I think it's got more to do with the fact that what they're actually doing is more complicated than what people maybe, what they would like to think. And a lot of reviewers think he's a therapist. So I always find that quite strange. Well, uh, I did, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's my <laughs> mission to you. But again, like I said, I might be projecting uh, my own sort. <laughs> it's, they do create a space. Uh, which you said, and they carve, and it, as I don't talk about Dr. Sullivan too exclusively, but they do carve out this kind of space where she does have free sort of reign to talk about all the things, sort of rise up within her and, and, and sort of come to her, both about her past and Germany's past. And the more I think about the novel, uh, the more I talk to you about it, the more I think about the narrator and Dr. Sullivan as together. Uh, complicit with one another in some way. Perhaps complicit isn't the right word, but they're co-constructors maybe, not conspirators, but they're co-constructors in this monologue to some extent. Now, for whatever reason, Dr. Seligman's name, it made me think of a psychologist. Perhaps this is why I thought it was to do with him being a therapist, but Martin Seligman is a quite a famous psychologist who devised a theory of learned helplessness, whereby a person can become so accustomed to an unpleasant situation, they feel powerless to change that situation, rudimentarily speaking. Your narrator, she receives an inheritance and that enables her choice about having this operation. I wondered why there was this choice and this change uh, that you chose to give your narrator. Um, for me, it was very, I think, important to, to bring her body into this and to sort of explore what it means if, if you're unhappy about the body that you were born into, but on, on many different sort of levels. So there is her gender identity that, that she's unhappy with and the fact that she was raised a woman and, and what it means to, to be a woman in this day and age. 
the subtle reference to, to a Bernhardt novel as well, where someone um, uses an inheritance, not, not to uh, change their gender, but um, to, I think in a way that the reader also doesn't expect. And um, so I think that's sort of obviously where the novel sort of culminates is in, in this idea that the two things um, are combined in a way that I think is unusual and that people find, some people have found that quite offensive. They said it's very vulgar, you're bringing, you know, the body into a book about the Holocaust. But to me, it's not one or the other, it's both at the same time. And it's just, I think a new way of, of looking at identity and that if you're born into an identity, it's it's things like your mother tongue and religion, but it's also just a physical reality that you're born into. And I guess this inheritance enables her to make that change. But I think at the same time, it also makes her realize that there are some things she can't change about herself and she'll never be able to change about herself. And even by, I mean, she goes and sees Dr. Zilligman and um, they're doing this together, but at the end of the day, she'll still be German, so. You say it's about identity and you're sort of born into an identity, but we don't necessarily understand what the identity is upon coming to the page. So have you created this identity within your mind before you've put it onto the page, before you started to choose to write it in this monologue? Because doing it in the monologue style or writing this kind of, um, you know, an embodied voice, it means we can only get access to certain aspects of her reality. Yeah, to me, it all started with that voice. I was sort of playing with some short stories and then I could I could suddenly hear hear her in my head. Um, but it was always the two of them together. It was always her addressing Dr. Zilligman. And I always say he's my favorite character. He actually is, I think. And to me, he's very <laughs> present. It's not, I don't know, I, he's, he's essential, I think. Um, and I think it could only have been been written in this in this form. I don't know, but for me, it all started with that voice, um, and it was actually quite a lot of fun to write it. I mean, it looks like it's fun because you. So I mean, that sense of wide ranginess and different registers and different levels. It's a sense that you felt you were working within boundaries and constraints. Talking about some of the things you do, or you know, you thought I can take the reins off to do it. So it just come very naturally to sort of write like that and write about this voice. It's very natural to me. Maybe that's a bit worrying, but I, um, I, it came very naturally in a way to just, I think it also maybe has something to do with writing in a language that's not your first language. Um, but it did feel quite liberating, I think, because if, 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 you're, if you are German, then th this is your... Um, heritage and I think it's your heritage independent of what your grandparents actually did because I, to me it's a it's a collective thing um, <clears throat> and it's also a collective guilt I think and obviously so we are all the descendants of those people and um, so it yeah it felt it felt very liberating to to find that voice and to put it on you know on paper and and I think the fact that the only people who are actually, or some of the people who so far have been upset about the book were 
were Germans and no one else, which is in itself quite telling, I think. Yeah, you, well, the German publication came after the English publication, uh, American, um, and then the Italian one, which Germany, the publication will be this summer and was an intent to provoke perhaps with this. And you're expecting more of that with the next, with the publication in Germany. Yeah, I didn't think much about Germany when I when I wrote it, to be honest. Um, and at some point, I just thought they're just never going to publish it. It's just it's just too much. And then the offer came in, and someone someone said, "I want to do this." And then my initial reaction was, "Oh no, I don't want this anymore because <laughs> it's going to be awful." Um, but now I've actually got the first half of the translation to look at, which is an interesting experience because it's someone translating you back into your mother tongue. So it's it's a very interesting process. But um, no, for me, it wasn't so much about sort of provoking people or provoking the Germans in particular. Um, I just I just felt like like writing it. I'm very curious what the German publication is going to be like. Um, well, was it a choice to write it in English? Did you, uh, see, obviously your mother tongue is German, but I'm not sure if it's because you primarily live in the UK or work in the UK, but was it a choice to write it in English? Mm, yes, and it was, um, I think in many ways, a sort of a process of, of acceptance for me because Yes, I, I grew up in Germany and that is, you know, my first language, but I've lived here for 15 years now. And it's, it's in many ways, the language I use um, on a daily basis. And, and it's, it's quite an interesting process, I think, to, to accept that and to work with that. And, and English has become a sort of like a tool that I'm very fond of now because I can I can express things in it and I you know I, and also it's it's liberating but at the same time it creates a restriction that I find quite creative because obviously I don't have full access to the language and so I don't get caught up in you know thinking about an adjective or something like that. And, and I quite, I personally, I quite like that. And did you say you found the constraints of that or the restrictions of that liberating in some way? Yeah, totally. I find that very creative because you have to work with fewer sort of, you know, words and things. But that in itself, I find, I think some restrictions can be, can be creative. Um, and for me, it was just a sort of, yeah, a process of accepting, I think, my reality in, in many different ways. And you do also, I guess, have fewer inhibitions about saying certain things. It's like, you know, Freud when he said the root things in French. It's, you know, it's, it, it, there's an element of that. But I also think that we um, maybe need to revise our idea of what constitutes a mother tongue and at what point someone is allowed to make use of a language and at what point you welcome someone into a language and and I think maybe our ideas of that <clears throat> tend to be a bit outdated. The language is something that's alive, it's a process, it's not something stagnant.
So um, I think in that sense, yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed invading invading this language. So it's kind of a good process. Invading this language. So if there was, you know, if there wasn't another, bluntly speaking, if there wasn't another language to sort of write this novel in, would you know, would you've been able to write it if that makes sense? Very sort of rudimentary speaking, but does it, you know, does that dilemma kind of represent anything or? I think it would have been quite hard to write it in German because it's German is much slower and it's also this is a total cliche, but it's also very true that it's not a very funny language. I think it's very <laughs> it's quite hard to be funny in German in that way. I think and and for me the um, the pace of the novel was very important because it's a bit like being bombarded. I think if you're, if you're the reader, but I think it only it only worked because it's so dense and so fast paced. I'm not sure. I mean, I think in a way, I feel like maybe it needed this element of um, alienation and the fact that it's it's because also she's that that's something that's important for me as well that she's not a native speaker and so her, her language is sometimes maybe a little bit off or something and that was important to me as well and I think it's important that we maybe write voices in a language but that's not their first language and you know there's there's a lot of a lot of things you can play with there. Love often reminds me of blood Dr. Seligman. Don't you think they're quite similar? Blood is only beautiful and full of symbols as long as it stays in its place. But once we see it smeared across someone's face or dried on a towel, we are put off because our mind immediately fills in the gaps with violence and a lack of control. Love, like blood, needs to be a story we can tell. If it breaks free from the picture frames and veins we have forced it into, it causes hysteria and brutal attempts are made to put it back where it belongs to contain what is contagious, for, like love, blood gives life, but it is also home to all the things that can kill us, all that we are afraid of, all the diseases that Dracula had instilled in his rats. There's a hygiene of love, don't you agree? Just like I cannot go smearing my blood around, like they have invented endless products to make sure women don't lose their dirty blood in public, I also cannot go around and just love where I see fit. The blood we see on the pavement could be anyone's. It's not immediately clear whether we're dealing with a person or an animal, and we don't even know how it got there, whether there's a culprit or whether they turned against themselves because they just couldn't handle it anymore, whether they used the weapon or simply their teeth. Blood on the pavement signals unrest, just like love outside the frame, a reminder of all the pain that is inevitably coming our way. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that I should be allowed to let loose in a playground, but we have such a clear idea of what a love story is that if you go and try to find a different way to use your heart, they all say that you too have sick rats in your basement and that you drank their blood when they least expected it. But it's their own fault, Dr. Seligman. If they had not tried to fit my body into one of their picture frames, to make me smile whilst nothing around me was true, I would never have tried to be like them and Kay and I would not have needed all those other colours to paint another universe onto each other's bodies. I've started working on, on another um, 
novel and uh, it's also in English. I, I do enjoy writing in English. And I, as I said, I think it's more sort of who I am now, I think. And I'm not really a, a German writer. I've never lived in Germany as an adult. So I think um, it's, it's, that's the sort of direction I'm, I feel yeah, drawn into. And I think it's very enjoyable um, to write in English. I did do a bit of writing in, in, in German when I was younger, and it's. I think the English is much closer to you know, who I am probably if if it ever is that. That's what I really love about this. It is, there is something about it. There's you know there's so many sort of dark themes, and there's so many kind of just so much that's kind of plumbed and kind of just explored, but it is a, it does look like it was a, a enjoyable process that really sort of comes through on the on the page. But this looks like it was on some level a sheer kind of unbridled joy just to put on the page and um, very sort of enviable in that respect as well. I mean, you talked about it's an embodied experience as well. Um, and there's a lot about containers and structures in the appointments. One of the most frequent ones is the references to Dr. Seligman's Velvet Room, uh, for instance, which I found quite humorous. Um, but the narrator, she makes a lot of links between the body body as a container the novel and then arguably any art form is a process of finding the space to express itself is it not and i wondered how do you think the narrator would judge the results of her own expression the novel if this were the case she probably feels better because i think in many ways this also functions as a confession and i think it has that effect that um she was finally able to <clears throat> to say something um, that she's never said before, and I also like to think that she got slightly carried away, as you know, as you do, and which again, his silence, I think, um, accelerates that. But also, what was important for me was that Dr. Seligman obviously knows about her body, so she doesn't need to tell him about that anymore. Um, but he doesn't know about her other sort of secret um, sort of her inheritance and who she, who she really is. Um, but for me, it was quite powerful to have that structure, you know, and I think also your earlier question about the, the psychologist, and I think she tried talking to a psychologist, Jason, that didn't work, um, <laughs> but she can talk to, to the person who knows how she feels about her body and that she's unhappy with her gender and that that's something she wants to change and so I think it was that structure that I was quite interested in but I'm I like to think that she um yeah she feels better I think yeah it's, there's a whole host of sort of characters that you refer to or that the narrator refers to uh Jason who is an actual therapist bemoans his lack of progress I guess uh, there's also Kay the uh, artist that she had a rather kind of, at times, sordid looking affair with. Uh, I don't know if you want to speak a bit more about those and what they might represent. Kay represents, I think, the a lot of the sadness that comes with being stuck in a body that you don't feel is, is the right body for you and also the impact that that can have on, on your relationships and how you sort of forced, or sometimes I think you're forced to um, make a choice there or take a decision and that 
if you go on a journey like this, then you, you're inevitably going to lose some people, I think. You're also going to meet new people, but I think you're also going to, um, you're going to lose some people. And I think it's also sort of maybe a sadness over how we have quite a limited, I think, approach when it comes to relationships and how they're meant to be functioning. And that if you think of it in sort of different terms then you know you're going to encounter certain certain problems in this society as it is and I think that's sort of what what he he stands for Kay I mean it was obviously Kafka uses quite a lot and there are character comparisons been made to Kafka but perhaps it represented a past where she had sort of like things where she felt limited and where she didn't have choices about the direction of what her life went and you talked about the kind of feeling of not being in the right body Yes, and and I think obviously also that's a sort of turning point for her. You know, it's also she, I think he also makes her realize that she can't carry on like that. She needs to change something, and that this kind of relationship is not um, what she's looking for anymore. And so I think she's also grateful to him in some ways, but it's uh, it's a sad story. And I think Jason, yes, I did like this. Um, contrast that for her the, the psychologist isn't really helping because it, it's so much about her, her body her actual physical body rather than problems in in her mind so um dr Zilligman is the is the right choice for her and i think it's yeah that again it's this for me this connection between being born into this guilty body if you want if you you know have this kind of heritage um, and then going to see a, a Jewish doctor to talk about it. There's, there is a, a kind of rage against binaries uh, within it. So they allow you to bring in kind of great ranges of comedy and sadness and tragic. So within that, you know, there is a kind of way that you do use a kind of binary to an extent or binaries to play off each other in the novel. They obviously, as you said, they are there. I mean, we use them to make sense of, of the world. Um, and And she's sort of, She's raging against them, <laughs> um, but yes, she 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 also uses them. That's true, um, and I guess it's a, also an interesting conflict because on the one hand she is raging against the binaries, but at the same time she does want to change gender, which is I think an interesting conflict in general, you know, for people who. Who, who go through this, that on the one hand, you reject the, the idea of gender, but then you still feel like changing your body. And I think that's also something that she struggles with. Um, but I think she's also very angry about the, um, the situation that this binary system creates for women or female bodies or bodies that are read as female and the sort of disadvantage that, that is created by that. Yeah, I mean, on the on the subject of that, um, critics have made sort of links to Bernhard. I mean, you've made links to Bernhard Kafka, and there's also been comparisons to novels like Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth. But I wonder how this sort of sits with you. Um, um, I mean, you know, I was reminded of writers like Siri Hustvet, Atessa Moshveg, writers who I also think have created narrators um, that aren't comfortable with binaries. 
Um, and I wonder if there's still some kind of archaic expectations of maybe sensibility when we talk or when we don't talk about writers that aren't male. I think they are judged differently. Um, and I think there is, of course, this assumption that women write more autofiction than men. And it's always sort of kind of taken for granted that if it's, um, a, you know, a woman writing that she's writing about her own, her own life. But I also think um, the sensibility thing is, is true as well, because if you, I don't know, if you think of something like Portnoy's Complained, where people find it very funny that, and I find it funny too, that, you know, I think he's trying to, is he trying to masturbate with his mother's bra or something like this? Yeah, it's um, the liver uh, that they eat for dinner. That's one of them, isn't it? But if you wrote a, a, a sort of a female character trying to masturbate with any of her father's items or something like this, people would, I think, find it more problematic. And I think that um, female voices, just like their bodies are, I think, policed in ways that are probably unimaginable for men. Um, <clears throat> and And women are... Are less free I think and I think that applies to, to everything that they do and it also applies to to their writing and that if you think of a, of a female body and if, if it's just the stir that's caused if I don't know a woman doesn't shave her legs or something like this you know people can't really cope with that and that's really a trifle <laughs> but I think it, it is judged differently I think but I also think that um because of the binary system we live in, men are deprived of quite a lot of things because they're deprived of a lot of experiences and I think emotions and they, they deprive themselves of them. But also, you know, men can't really cry in public, they can't wear a skirt. Right, you know? I actually wrote quite a lot, uh, Siri Husfet and The Blindfold. That was her, her debut novel and her narrator. She gets a uh, haircut, uh, correct? Oh, I can, I haven't, I haven't read the book, but I can relate to that in the sense I've had discussions with hairdressers over, I mean, at the moment I've got quite long lockdown hair, but um, hairdressers who said, oh, but women should have long hair, and you know, and then, and then I said, oh, can you shave my head, you know, and then he had a complete meltdown. <laughs> but after sort of an hour, he came around to it and said, oh, yeah, I would shave your head, and I said, yeah, thank you. But women are somehow supposed to be needs and their bodies are supposed to be presentable and excuse the word fuckable you know there's yeah. there's this this sort of expectation and and often women then end up expecting that of themselves and um i always find that quite sad and i wish that we wouldn't raise women like that or little girls you know i saw somewhere that somebody there are all, all the things you could say to like a a little girl instead of saying you're pretty and there's a long list of things you could be saying so well i mean as you talk about that the appointment is about uh is about limitations it's about cultures it's about uh, expectations but it's also about breaking out of those i mean let's talk about bernhard i know you revere him some that you've spoken about was admiring but he was a writer who wasn't shy in declaring his revulsions at his homeland of Austria. He didn't want his novels to be sold there. So I think for a while, 
Um, they, I think, for a while, they you couldn't buy them in Austria or something. He was very, um, he was very strict about that. The old masters, in particular, um, it makes use of this very direct voice um, and very sort of direct relationship with the reader, even though he's actually speaking to somebody else. Uh, which, in a way, I guess your narrator is doing. Um, I wondered why you might have adapted a similarly very direct voice with the reader, and if it perhaps came from, or well, partly was inspired by Bernard. Mostly, sort of, I don't know, inspired by 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 Bernard is the um, is how strict he's with himself as a writer, because he's incredibly strict with himself. I think because he doesn't allow himself to do you know, sad things. He, I think we share that we share a hatred of descriptions. I, I also don't like descriptions. <laughs> um, I find them very, very boring usually. Uh, but he, he once gave an interview and he, he said that, you know, some writers, they waste 60 pages to get to the, to the garden gate. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's, it's this, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a question of choice, but I always find these kind of lengthy descriptions of things, very boring. I'm much more interested in um, describing states of mind, I think, and, and, and feelings. And I think he um, did something quite similar. Um, I also love his sense of humor. He's one of the very few authors writing in German and I find it hysterically funny. Um, or some of it is very funny. It's also very sad and, and also very angry. And I think, He's been having a bit of a revival also because it's still very um, relevant and also because he's not one of those male writers that you might now find uncomfortable to read because of their depiction of women and, you know, it's, it feels quite outdated. But because he... I mean, there are different versions of this. Some people say he was impotent. Some people say he was asexual. But his sexual politics were very different, I think, to a lot of other male writers at the time, which is why I think it's still very enjoyable to to read him. Well, that's one reason, I think. And obviously, his the things he was angry at, you can still be angry at. But I, I think of him as very disciplined in some ways, and I, I do like that. Yeah, this thing, this thing about sort of discipline and uh, limitations in some way is uninhibiting. <laughs> It seems to recur through what you're sort of saying, perhaps um, in Bernhard as well. Um, do, do you like old masters? And the sort of 150 pages, I was, I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I like this. It's very good. Um, then the final 20, it, like I said, it just elevated into something else completely to do with the death of his wife and this, this all the kind of this sort of mediation of Schopenhauer, which not being too attached to the world, I thought was a really important sort of value within that um and i think the other thing about him that i like a lot is that he's never sentimental or anything but occasionally there are like tender moments in his writing and they're very effective because they are so rare um yeah. I, I do like i do like that thank you so much katarina for joining me today and thank you of course for listening to our conversation now you can buy the appointment from fitz edition editions and once you've done that why don't you join us next time when i'll be joined by jen Kalea.